Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another slice of TV show and tell the podcast about the whys and wherefores of the TV industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in this episode, our special guest is a veteran series and executive producer of The Chase, Jewel, Poker Face, Hole in the Wall, and many other things besides, Sue Allison. We'll also be discussing the pros and cons of the announced government sell-off of the UK's fourth channel, and I'll tell you all about my new television. But first, let's take a detour down News Alley for anything of interest in the media business. So what has got your news nose twitching, Justin? Well, it's been a little bit quiet since the markets at MIP, but I picked up a few things internationally. So one of them is a Japanese show called Chico's Challenge, which has been around for a while, but is now starting to roll out as a format into other countries. It's just been commissioned in Spain. And the premise of it is that the quiz master is an eternal five-year-old who's actually a rather disturbing combination of CGI and costume and Mm. actually voiced by a a male adult comedian. And basically, Chico asks childish questions which the celebrities try to answer Um, but if Chico doesn't like the answer then she throws a tantrum so this might be familiar to parents out there so example questions so here's a question for you David why do grandpas have long eyebrows Um, oh I'd love to know that because my granddad had enormously long eyebrows (laughs) well there you go another question I picked out was why can't soccer players use their hands right well it's because it's in the rules? Yes, but why is it in the rules? Remember, this five-year-old just keeps saying, mm. why, mm. why, why? Mm. Why do we use pillows? I've, well, since we have, I've had new pillows, I've slept much, much better. <laughs> so I can, I can answer that. Okay. jolly useful things. It does remind me of a scene many years ago in Reggie Perrin where they go to the zoo and this little boy just keeps asking questions. The question that always stuck in my mind was, why are lions... <laughs> so anyway that's chico's challenge okay yeah it has been a bit of a quiet news time in march we had 10 new game shows for example and in may we only had three and one of those is a remake of the games hmm. uh, but in in global sort of terms it's been a relatively interesting period certainly netflix has announced that it's lost subscribers for the first time in more than a decade which spooked Wall Street and, and caused its shares to plummet by more than a third, which meant that it lost about $50 billion in market capitalization. But then we have things like ITV here in the UK have announced that they're going to continue with its free ad-funded ad service for streaming ITVX. And then we also have Banijay have announced that they are going to become a public company. So they're the company that behind brands such as Survivor, Peaky Blinders and MasterChef. So it's all changed. Yeah. Pulling it back to the production side of things, I noticed uh, an Israeli series. I'm not sure if this has actually been made yet or whether it's being sold, shopped around the world. It's called Spy Date. 
So basically, it involves an ex-Mossad agent. I think everybody in Israel is an ex-Mossad agent, but there you go. And a matchmaker. And they work together to try and get two singles to come together and go on a date. But none of these people know that they're on a date. Ah. So they've got two weeks. And in that two weeks, they've got to set up situations which they attempt to control in order to get them in the same place at the same time and then force them to sort of talk to each other or whatever. That's um, fascinating because in the early days of the internet, uh -huh. there was something called Coincidence Design, which was a company where if you say you fancied somebody, you could pay them money and then they would somehow arrange for you to kind of like save them from walking into traffic or something like that. Well, that's, that's exactly it. So, for example, in the sizzle that I've seen, you've got two people in a laundrette. They've managed to get them both into the laundrette. And then they have someone deliver a pizza that nobody's ordered. Mm. So, you know, will they share the pizza? Or one of them is constantly on their phone, so they switch their phone off. So suddenly uh -huh. they're on their own in the laundrette with nothing to do. So maybe they'll start talking to each other. And the matchmaker's reading their body language all the time and feeding that information to the Mossad agent, who's then working out how we can use actors or tech or sometimes collaborators like their other friends and whatever to force the situation. Right. So the, the twist of the tale is that the coincidence design thing turned out to be a, a fake it was just, just done as a spoof, that, that, and they sort of let it run for a while until somebody rumbled that it wasn't real. But this this is now someone doing it for real, so that yeah. is interesting. So if anyone out there wants to pick it up, it's uh, distributed by Dory Media. Um, I think it's actually quite fun. Maybe maybe they've they've manipulated us to talk about it here now. That's true, yes. Absolutely. You're probably right. It probably popped up on my feed at just the right moment. <laughs> And now it's time for this week's special guest interview with entertainment exec producer Sue Allison. Back in 2009, a new quiz show called The Chase launched on ITV here in the UK. It's currently airing in over 10 different countries, including Australia and the USA. A mere 13 years later, it's recently won the BAFTA Award for Best Daytime Television Programme. So it seems a good time to talk to the original series producer of The Chase, Sue Allison. And I'm delighted to say that Sue joins us now. Welcome, Sue. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So let's start with The Chase and the genesis of producing the first series. So the pressure was on, wasn't it? Because you were actually up against another show at the same time, weren't you? Yeah, it was this really strange setup that you had ITV Entertainment that were making uh, The Chase series of 10 episodes, a pilot series, as we called it. And you had um, the sort of fact tent department who made things like Dancing on Ice, um, who were making uh, The Fuse, which was also 10 episodes. And it was this sort of genius idea to have an internal competition between the two departments and those two shows, and whichever did the best. And we were never quite sure whether that was purely on ratings or other things as well. But whichever one they thought had done the best would then get, get a series of 40 episodes commissioned. So it was, it was sort of quite good in some ways because you're going into it knowing that you've got a one out of two chance of getting a series, which is, you know, much better odds than a usual pilot. But uh, yeah, it was difficult. It was also strange to be kind of competing against ITV colleagues. That was really odd. 
and we sort of shared some resources. That was the same game control team doing both shows, for example. So yeah, it was it was a it was a really really strange setup. But making making one episode of a show and then editing it is what you ideally want to do because, as we all know, with game shows and quiz shows, the pacing is so important. Getting the pacing right because you can't cut any of the questions out; they all have to stay in. So getting the pacing of the show right so it fits exactly within that 46-minute ITV one hour is what's really, really hard. And having to do that across 10 episodes is, is even without having edited one is, is what makes that a particularly, particularly tricky challenge. Mm. And I remember at the end of the first recording of the first episode that we made, looking back at the notes with the PA in the gallery, looking how much content we'd recorded and thinking, oh my God, I can't cut this into 46 minutes. I just can't do it. I don't think it's possible. And then having to go make the other 10 shows, it was too late to change it by then. Um, and yeah, it was very stressful until the end of the first edit and thinking, okay, this is okay, actually. But um, you know, if you then look from the pilot episodes onto the first series, what we actually did was took a rung out of the ladder and taking that rung out of the ladder was what allowed much more of Brad's personality, chat, the entertainment and the fun that now we all associate with the show to sort of come through. So I nearly messed it up. <laughs> the heart of the show is um, Bradley, obviously his performance, but also the chasers themselves. So what there's a, there's a wide range of people of uh, personalities in quizzing. So what were you specifically looking for when casting the chasers? What we were trying to do was be very different from Eggheads. And obviously Eggheads was um, people basically being themselves, wearing versions of their own clothes and, you know, sort of having quite pleasant personalities, (laughs) you know, and and what we wanted to do with the with the chasers, the the very nature of the show, you know, the idea that this is the baddie, this is the baddie coming to get you. We had to make those characters larger than life, but also not make it feel ridiculous and over the top and staged and phony. It, it's quite a fine line getting the difference between those two. And what I would say is that all of the chasers do really well. They're sort of a hyped up version of themselves they're not completely being somebody else they are sort of caricatures they're the they're the, the panto baddies so for the original that original pilot series there were just two there was sean wallace um, and now sean had been involved right from before i came on board i think it was not that long after his mastermind win and and he came on and i remember going to a very early run through of the idea up in one of the rooms in itv and sean just did this brilliant walk on and sit down and just a real kind of staring out the contestant and it was like yeah no that's actually you know this is good and the, right from the beginning we thought actually sort of less is more if they can be a, more that they're a menacing presence the the better so we had a sean we needed to find something completely, completely different to that. And so the second one who was cast was um, Mark Labette. And myself and the team had come across Mark years, a few years before because he'd applied to be on Poker Face. 
and had been auditioned for Poker Face, I think. And I remember, like, and I'm sure you won't mind me saying this. Like, you know, I remember the time thinking, oh, no, it's far too arrogant to be on Poker Face. What if he wins? No one will like it. No one's going to want him to win, like, a million pounds. And we thought he probably could, you know. When his, I think his name came up for this, and, and we spotted the name, like, oh, that was that guy. Like, he was brilliant. Actually, oh, my God, this is perfect for him. And I've still got somewhere his uh, audition tape, his first audition. And he came in in this, like, huge great coat that almost went down to the floor. I mean, you can imagine it looked like Hagrid or something. It was enormous. Enormous <laughs> guy walks in, this great big long coat, and just sits down. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but something like, oh yeah, no, they call me the beast. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> like actually don't bother staying for the auditions. No need. You're in. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you know, he it's it's a version of himself, as I'm sure, as I'm sure he'd agree. And all those moments where you know, he storms off and he thumps the table and all of those things are perfectly, they're perfectly in character. They're not, you know, they don't seem faked or forced or anything. So that was the pilot. Then um, for the series, I really wanted the third chaser to be a woman. That it was a strong woman who could hold her own, who would be completely herself. And that was, that was quite a hard task and I remember that we saw quite a lot of people and there were you know there were really good quizzes on the circuit because obviously that's the most important thing first and foremost they have the the right level of quizzing you know it has to be a really really high standard to be able to feel like they will consistently beat the contestants that's obviously key and we the people that we met were great quite often great quizzes but they were just a bit too nice so when we got a letter from Anne, who she wrote in um, to the team and said something like she'd been, <laughs> so, you know, she, she realised what kind of character you needed to be because she'd seen the pilot series and she realised you needed to be quite tough and it was the fact that she'd once chased off a couple of muggers, the kind of thing that we were looking for. <laughs> and I do remember, I remember getting this letter. Um, oh, this is a good one. I remember reading it just going, oh, come on come on be as good as you sound and 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 she was and she was and you know Anne's like a very lovely lady but I think she channels one of her aunts I think she she once told me to sort of um create this this fantastic persona that that she has um and and then I think the challenge with with Anne was then you know how do we get the look because um I don't you know I'm sure you've seen Anne outside of the chase and sort of her her style is more she wears like these gorgeous like floaty quite floral outfits that are and you know which obviously is completely wrong for for a chaser and so um yeah I remember the the day that uh our wardrobe designer took her off to the shops to find something and it's like right let's go like prisoner cell block eight chic if you can like something something like that um, and then this picture comes back of her looking like Miss Trunchbull. And it was like, yeah, that's the one. That's where we need to be with her. And she was, you know, she's just been a, a genius from the start. She just got it. She completely got it. She, I mean, she's actually a brilliant actress. And she just delivers those lines, like, so perfectly when she comes out. And they're just acerbic and they're funny. And her comic timing is absolutely spot on. So do you think there's a a trend in game shows having more kind of character-led involvement because it always struck me that we had 
before the chase, we had uh, game shows that were played were about the contestants and the host. Uh, and then we had a lot of reality shows where people got used to the idea of character and plot and story. I think certainly they were thinking about um, about emotion and how it feels to be chased and how horrible it is if you feel like someone's chasing you and trying to tap into that emotion, which I think was something that was new in, in quiz shows at the time. We hadn't really sort of specifically targeted that. Um, that before like really going what is this feeling of of being in that situation but um, you know for for me coming to it as a producer once that was already set in stone that there would be a chaser or a number of chasers the the scope then for being able to create little moments of intrigue and entertainment was you know was fantastic and to have a changing cast of chasers as well so you'd have a different feel every day just took it from being a sort of standard quiz that, like you say, is about nice presenter, contestants doing their best and having a lovely day into something a bit more a piece of entertainment, um, which was my background. I worked in light entertainment sort of for most of my career up until that point. And also Claire Horton, who was head of entertainment at ITV at that point and who brought me in to do the show. That was her background as well. So it was certainly, you know, it was always our instincts that we wanted to kind of make it as much about the entertainment um, and, and really make make something that could have stood in, in prime time, but for a, for a daytime audience. And Because you almost had prime time money in daytime, that, that it was pretty chunky prize money. Um, and so how did you put in fairness procedures in place to sort of ensure that, you know, all of that was looked after properly? I always thought from the beginning that it was something that I wanted to do. It's something that I'd always done in prime time shows like when we made Jewel, for example, because the reality is that, you know, as we know from scandals of the past and, you know, who knows, scandals yet to be uncovered, there is a temptation there for for producers to try and get shows to have big money being waved around, but not actually won by the contestants. And when when you're given a budget for a show and you have to bring it in on budget and you can't go over on on prize money, and you've got a contestant on the verge of winning £50,000, as can happen on the chase, you can imagine if you're in the gallery with no checks and balances, the temptation to put a question in there that is outside of that person's um, knowledge base, as far as you know, from looking at their application form, etc., is really quite high. So, I mean, the way the way that it works, and I know you've had Olivia on the show, and so you know sort of how how it works, Olivia from um, Olivia Vanderwerf from Beyond Dispute, who I brought in to do the chase. And what happens when you work with an independent adjudicator like that is that it starts right at the beginning. You go through the rules. You go through the rules of the show, and how. And she asks lots of um, very probing questions about, well, what happens in this case? What happens if someone started saying part of a question? but they haven't got through to the end. What happens if they say they give an answer, but then they want to change it to another answer? And all of those things that you just work through very, very, very carefully to make sure those rules are completely set in stone. And it's such an important part of that process. And then when you're actually in studio, uh, there is a set copy of questions that are for the show that is decided on before you press record. And the independent adjudicator has a copy so she would know if a producer was trying to change something around, give them a different question or something like that, and then then she could flag it. 
more and more shows do now have independent adjudicators, but not all of them, and it's not a requirement. But presumably, with the shows like The Chase going to the United States, uh, the standards and practices requirements in the States are much more uh, stringent than they are in the UK. So getting these things right at the beginning uh, helps the process of licensing shows to to the US. Yeah, I would think so. But I mean, you know, the reality is with coming up with a, a new format is that we can all come up with an amazing format that's where someone, you know, has a chance to win a million pounds and it's all amazing and exciting. But if your format is not controllable um, in a compliant way, then there's no point having it. If the only way you can control your format is by changing the questions and you know that kind of thing and essentially fixing it then it's it's not a robust format you know if you're if you're finding you're giving away too much prize money on the chase then what you can do is have a look at the level of contestants that you're casting into it you can look at training up your chasers more you can look at what your standard of questions is overall are the questions just a bit obscure and you know and all of that is completely compliant to to do that but when you put a set of questions in front of a, um, a a team of contestants, then they have to have as much of a fair chance as anyone else at doing those. So, I mean, I think we are, I think we are pretty good in this country, but I think, you know, like you say, in, in the US, obviously if a show's presented to them that has already got all of that set up with independent adjudication and has run like that for a while, it's an easier buy. So I know what development's like, and sometimes you get notes from commissioners and so on. So what, sort of uh, changes were made before you went into the first pilot series? Um, I don't know if you know this, you might or you might not, but the the show that was commissioned for that pilot series, the way it used to work is that the contestants would, there was no cash builder, contestant would go up to the board and you would answer questions going up the board and then when you got as far as you dared, you would say, oh no, I'm going to stop now and then the chaser would come out and chase you back down the board. Oh. And, and we did a run through for Alison Sharman, who was our commissioner at ITV, of this version of the show, like really quite close, really close to when we were going into studio. And um, and it was just quite slow. It was quite slow going up the board and quite a long time until the chaser came out and all of that. And at the end of it, she said, well, I mean, I think our viewers will be bored to tears if we put that out. I think we need to change it. And we were like, oh, my God, like literally oh, yeah. we were a couple of weeks out. And so that's when the, the cash builder was invented, which is much better. And the offers and all of that it was all, you know, it was good. It was really good thing that happened and those changes that were made. But if you look at the set, where they come and stand for the cash builder, it's like a sort of nowhere place like sort of in between the the contestant area and the board. And they're just standing, they're just backed by sort of, you know, some moving lights or whatever. But it's a bit nothingy, isn't it? Like if you think about it. And that's because we hadn't designed the set with that in mind because that change was made so late. It was too late to do anything about it. And so it sort of makes me laugh when I see international versions and they have the opportunity to build their new set and they still don't have a place for that. They just stand <laughs> <hands> in place. <laughs> Now, in the recent Queen's speech, the UK government has confirmed that they're committed to selling off Channel 4. Founded by Mrs Thatcher's government in 1982, Channel 4's remit was to serve alternative audiences and, crucially, to support the independent TV sector. 
So is it still fit for purpose or would privatisation give it the flexibility it needs in the Netflix era? Now, in this instance, I should probably admit that I owe my TV career to Channel 4 because <laughs> the first show I worked on was The Crystal Maze. And if it wasn't for that show, I wouldn't probably be working in television. And you, similar with you, really. Somewhere. Yeah, the very first show that I worked on was After Dark, which was the late night open-ended discussion show on Channel 4. And like you, I, I then had a format commissioned by Channel 4 called Don't Quote Me. And then I went on to on The Crystal Maze on Channel 4. So yes, I began in the independent sector and in those days, the independent sector was entirely for Channel 4. Hmm. So let's try and sort of unpack the pros and cons of this. So mm-hmm. support. So let's look at sort of the case against privatisation first. So first of all, people are saying that this is a channel that doesn't require any subsidy from taxpayers. Or it just takes the revenues it gets from its advertising and turns that into programming. And it's currently profitable. Yeah. So that's... A big plus. That's true. I mean, originally, when it began, ITV was responsible for the advertising on both ITV and Channel 4. And then it just gave that money to Channel 4 to support it. And then some years later, Channel 4 said that they could carry their own advertising and fund themselves from their advertising revenue. Mm. It currently supports about 20,000 jobs in the independent TV sector. And also, it's true to say that although the money from the sell-off, which is about a billion pounds, has been promised to be put back into training and other benefits for the sector, it's it's very much a one-off mm. benefit. Now, once it's sold, it's sold. And any other profits from then on, it's basically going to go into the private hands of somebody. And that somebody is probably going to be American. Yeah, that always feels a little bit one of, like one of those... Um low-cost housing promises doesn't it (laughs) we'll build this development but we promise you there's going to be lots of low-cost housing involved and by the time it actually comes to it there isn't very much but we'll see yes i mean while it's true to say that there's a high chance the borrower will be american channel five is owned by an american Yes, Channel 5 is owned by what was Viacom CBS, um, which in February renamed themselves as Paramount um, as a nod to the their historic past. I think main anxieties that people have against privatisation are that there will be less distinctive, less diverse uh, voices uh, on a privatised company. And also there's lots of anxiety about Channel 4 News because they have a probably slightly more anti-government than most most um, news outlets. Yes, I mean, I've been hearing this Channel 4 News argument for at least 20 years. And the truth is that Channel 4 News is something that everybody supports, but not enough people actually watch. Um, so I, I do often feel that its influence is more psychological than, than actual. Mm. that people really do consume their news either in different places or in short bursts or in rolling news across the day now. So the significance of a of a lengthy, in-depth news flagship programme at seven o'clock is quite diminished for the, to tell the truth. And there hasn't really been any sign that investigative journalism has diminished in recent years. If anything, it's actually come to the fore, you know, both in print and digital and on TV. And there's nothing to say that they might be able to, say, ring-fence the funding for Channel 4 News as part of mm. the deal for any new buyer, for example. Mm. So let's sort of look at the, the pros or the other, the flip side of this argument. So one interesting fact that came up on actually a Channel 4 interview with David Elstein, who was 
more than Channel 4 in the early days, was that actually they spend more money with independent producers that are are now not really treated as indies anymore because they're now so big. So, for example, Great British Bake Off is essentially made for them by Sky. So how much money are they actually giving to, if you like, the independent sector? What percentage of their revenue? It's $155 goes to the smaller independent producers and $170 more goes to people that are no longer treated really as as Mm. indies themselves because they're too big. So carrying on with the uh, arguments in favour of privatisation, it's always the public service side of Channel 4 that is promoted as the reasons for keeping it in public ownership. And yet public service content within it is actually halved since 12 years ago. I think to me the key thing is if you look actually bother to look at their current schedule mm. i don't think it's a schedule that even modest digital channel would be particularly happy with i mean for example in the mornings they've kind of given up <laughs> to me <laughs> it's like there is literally seven u.s sitcoms repeated in a row wow for all morning and sometimes it's even the it's like seven episodes of frasier then in the afternoon on the day I saw, there was three consecutive hours of house buying shows, mostly people buying stuff abroad. And then in the evening, I mean, there was some, in the peak, there was some different stuff, but like late evening onwards, it was back-to-back documentaries about food, travel, doctors, and the police. So even the fact that they documentaries, you think, oh, that could be investigative, but really they were topics that other channels are covering just as mm. well, frankly. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a nostalgia factor to all of this. And also the feeling that there ought to be a channel that ought to have serious public service content on it, but we don't actually decide to watch it when we get home and we're tired and we want a glass of wine and stick the box on. And also, as you say, that that channel doesn't really exist anymore anyway. Um, and that what you might turn to Channel 4 to find it there, it's, it's yes, there's always some diamonds in the rough, and Channel 4's marketing makes a great deal of capital when they do do something controversial or unexpected or where they cast a spotlight on some area that's unrepresented in life. But the truth is that those things are few and far between. So using them as an argument to keep the channel in the public sector is is a hard one to to do, I think. For years, Channel 4 have asked for this thing called top slicing, where they've said, well, the BBC's got all of this guaranteed income. Why don't you top slice 10% of that and give it to us so that we can use it for genuinely risky content that perhaps isn't so popular but does fill the public service element of our remit? Uh, but it's it's not an argument that's found favour with the mm. government, who are even looking to get rid of the the licence fee now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I think part of the trouble is that the public service remit was dependent on people having less of a choice in terms of what they watch. So the schedules existed to protect public service content and ensure that it actually found an audience by packaging more accessible or more familiar shows around it and then allowing people to discover that stuff. 
now where everyone is essentially self-scheduling and choosing what to watch we can tell from that the kind of things that people do want to watch and that is largely kind of wallowing in entertainment or long-form drama or dating reality shows and so on so i think it's harder for everybody who's who's engaged with the with public service broadcasting which is why across the world public service channels um, are are diminishing and suffering and finding it very very hard to survive Now we return to our interview with Sue Allison, who takes us through some of the other varied shows she's produced. Turning to another show that you did, which was Hole in the Wall, uh, which was effectively spun off from a a clip that went viral uh, from another show. That's a, a really tricky show to test because you've got these massive polystyrene walls that people are trying to fit their bodies through so how on earth did you test something like that yeah it was like it was a real real challenge it was so much fun that show but yeah the most important thing on hole in the wall is that the holes are exactly the right size because the hole is too big the team will pass through the hole is too small everyone's going to get knocked in the water it's impossible and we sort of tried to work out that by example but then we thought look the only way really to do this is to do it so we used to have like what we call wall nights at um, at, uh, at Talkback Thames. And there's a big area, it's a huge building, like great big offices. And so there were some areas that were quite big spaces. And so we set it up and we would make um, walls out. So we get these great big pieces of cardboard and cut (laughs) cut the shapes out of them. And then you'd have two of the team, one one on either side of the wall, and they would run at us like... (laughs) to make the shape <laughs> and it was I mean you had a few beers as well I must confess and um it was just in and it, but it was really good as a, as, a, as a method of rehearsing it and so when we got to studio because the walls then had, had to all be laser cut in advance and as you can imagine they weren't cheap each individual wall to to make and so mm. if we got those dimensions wrong and we got to studio well number one we wouldn't have a show and uh, number two, we've got some very expensive laser cutting going on um, overnight. So it was really, it was really, really key that we that we did get that, you know, get that right. But that was, I mean, that was that was the most fun that I have ever had in the studio. It was just hilarious, like really, really funny. Just like that combination of it being Dale Winton, who was you know, sort of trying to control his rowdy children who were messing about in the background and everyone just had a really good time but it was it was hard for the contestants because so they've got these suits on these skin tight suits um and the water was well I mean it wasn't hot it was (laughs) cool and so once they've been in they were really quite cold and the studio was freezing because Dale Winton he used to really, he used to have to have all of his studios really, really cold. I don't know, maybe he found, you know, might get a bit sweaty or something like that if it was, if it got a bit hot. So, um, so it was absolutely freezing, freezing cold in the studio. So these poor celebs like shivering on the side. <laughs> and it would take quite a long time to record because you had to go and reload the wall machine in between the walls. And then Dale had to go for a cigarette in between every single wall. And and then every now and then, like he used to have this like incredible makeup that he wore, um, that was almost like a sort of 
plastic. It kind of smoothed his skin. It was, it was amazing. It was like a mask almost. But every now and then, it would crack, and you'd start to see these kind of big ridges <laughs> on his forehead. And Jonathan Bullen, who was a director, he'd be like, oh, Dale's gone. Dale's gone. Okay, we'll have to go. <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> like, rush in and like take a peel off all these layers of the makeup and then plaster it back on again over the top. And these, meanwhile, these poor celebrities are like shivering <laughs> in Arctic conditions having been in the water. Just, yeah, it was good fun for us. I don't know if it was fun for them. I'm not sure. <laughs> Oh dear, light entertainment, eh? Oh God, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing you did was uh, a reboot of the Krypton Factor, which again was perhaps a slightly unusual commission because of the way it was funded. Yes, it was sort of in the early stages of ad funding, and it was with Sage, the accountancy um, firm. Um, and you know it's it's really tricky with ad funding because the rules are that they can't have any influence over the content but of course they want to have influence over the content otherwise why are they bothering doing this in the first place so it's a bit of a it's a tricky dance that that you're trying to do things up and I think it was a good marriage the idea of the the product you know this accountancy system and the Krypton factor was a really good one and I'm not sure whether it would have come back without that extra funding from them but it was you know it's really I mean it's always you know god such a poison chalice isn't it trying to bring back that brand that everyone has such fond and very specific and particular memories of i imagine it's quite a expensive show to set up from scratch because you've got to build infrastructure from the beginning it's not like you have a ready-made assault course that the original show had i was rather hoping that there would be a ready-made assault course because the um it was the the one that was used in the original series was um holcomb moor and it was the army course this four-lane course so obviously that was the first thing that we did when it was commissioned phone them up and go oh can we come and use your four-lane assault course? And they were like, oh, well, you could, but it's a three-lane course now. We're like, oh. Ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was not ideal. And I think that the compromise that we went with in the first series of having them running around some very muddy woods in North Yorkshire uh, wasn't right, really. I mean, it was a bit of a sort of, right, how are we going to fix this in the time that we've got, rather than how do we make this the perfect assault course? The assault course for the second series of the reboot, I think, was much better and much closer to the to the original, and and just a much better watch because you could see where people were on the course and see how far ahead they were and so on. But you know, I think the challenge then with something like intelligence, the intelligence round, was trying to bring that up to fit the standards of the day and make it feel contemporary and that it was using technology that was appropriate for that time rather than just some bits of plastic. <laughs> well, I actually had a, a minor role to play, but because I did some of those intelligence tests, and oh, of course uh, you, you did. gave me this task of saying, "Well, we've got these these interactive tables that are sort of like quite wide and, and fairly shallow." And I, I had fun doing laser mazes and, and and things like that on this. These it's really quite cool tables. That I don't think they make anymore now, but um, they, they were able to recognize objects, and you, you could spin yeah. stuff around, and it would interactively draw a, a, like a, a laser and. and it would change depending on where you put something on the table. Yeah, and they were and they were great. They were really, really good, I think. Like, God, sorry, David, of course that's how we met. I totally forgot. Well, I suppose actually we didn't meet, did we? It was all done remotely. So um I, I was on honeymoon at the Philippines at the time. Oh well yeah. <laughs> even better than an even better job that you did. Um but yeah, they were really they were really good, I think. And um, you know, they did sort they did work, 
and um, the contestants were able to, or some of them at least, were able to complete them in the time, which of course is what's, you know, what's really difficult about that. And going into studio thinking, oh, well, this might, this challenge, what if it takes them three hours to complete it? And we're all still sitting there and we're running into overtime. And what's tricky about them and always will be tricky is that you don't have any play along at home. Like you, you can't with that kind of game. Um, and so, and I think that's what's quite hard as viewers. I think we expect a bit more interactivity these days, even if it's just answering the question in a quiz show. Quite recently, you developed um, Gordon Ramsay's bank balance, which was had to be done in quite extreme conditions. Just <laughs> tell us uh, how that came about. So, so the idea is that there's a table and a load of blocks. And if you can balance all of the blocks on the table, you win £100,000. And you do that through answering questions. So sort of quite a tricky, tricky game premise made during lockdown at the point when we still had to be two metres apart from everyone else, even within the office, which, as you can imagine, was quite tricky trying to trying to test a, a game table. And with all of run-throughs remotely with the commissioners, no pilot which again you know sort of made things made things hard on a, a big series like that all of the challenges of a usual show then of course with lockdown not being able to meet contestants for example only the contestant team could only meet contestants over zoom and we could only actually meet them when they came to the studio and at that point everyone's got masks on everyone's having to stay two meters apart how, how did you get gordon up to speed on running the game without a pilot a lot of that had to be done remotely as well because he'd been he'd been in the US and then he came to the UK but he had to then do two weeks quarantine. So he was in Cornwall oh. and we had to work with him remotely over Zoom. So we sent down a replica table down to his house in Cornwall for him to practice on and replica blocks and, and all the rest of it and sort of tried to do as much as we could over Zoom, you know, sort of but but of course he couldn't have anyone visit him in his house because he was during that quarantine period. So there were no contestants. So I think Tana helped out a little bit and his daughter helped out a little bit. But yeah, it was like, it's crazy now you sort of look back at it and think, oh my God, it's just so, so tricky. And uh, did I read somewhere that it actually took a while to get the scale of the actual balance itself right. You've got sort of this, this sort of finite parameters, and we did talk. You know, we talked to the BBC, and the BBC were really keen to make it as big as possible and everything else. But of course, as soon as you go the blocks above head, head height, once they tumble, if there's a risk of them falling on your head, then you do actually have a proper, genuine risk of serious injury. And obviously, you couldn't put everyone in helmets; that would have just been ridiculous. So. Um, it was trying to get, yeah, trying to make sure that you had a table where the, where it was scaled up from the original table that was in the run-throughs that was really quite small, more like a sort of card table size, up to something that was big enough to uh, feel like it had some kind of level of scale, but not so big that, yeah, you had run the risk of being knocked out or that people couldn't reach to put the blocks on top of each other or couldn't hold them in their hand, which was the other you know, trying to get that perfect size of block that you could hold comfortably. Bryn at Light Initiative and his team did an amazing job with them because that was completely new application of technology to have the light changing bricks. And so each one of those blocks had inside, like goodness knows how many transmitters 
that were all then transmitting back to lots of sensors around the set, talking to them so that when our game control team could say, right, they've got that answer wrong, those blocks need to turn red, that that, that, that would happen instantly and together and in that exact one moment that they would all turn a beautiful red colour. And actually, they won the well. It was, they won a broadcast tech award, and very, very deservedly so. I think that was tricky because it was a lot of a lot of building a prototype, realizing it doesn't work, building another prototype, realizing that doesn't work. You know, sort of trying to get that right. Well, as always with someone with your CV, we've only scratched the surface, really. But uh, grateful for you to come on. We're going to have you back for the show and tell later. Uh, but for now, Sue, thanks so much for being on the TV show and tell. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks for having me. So, Justin, in this segment, I want to tell you all about my new television. Okay, so do I need to get a pint and a packet of crisps and put my feet up above beside the fire? I find it interesting (laughs) that this television has been sat in the corner of my room for 15 years. And I haven't realised quite how much televisions have moved on. Because when we got the new one, I thought, oh, it's just going to be a slightly bigger screen. But I'm just amazed at the, the number of differences that there are about it. So, I mean, first of all, it was actually quite hard to buy a television as small as 43 inches. <laughs> but also the fact that it's so much lighter, it uses half the power and yet it's a bigger screen. Mm-hmm. Also the colour range as well, in terms of, you know, I'm quite badly colorblind which actually for games design is actually quite a useful thing sometimes but even i can tell the reds on the snooker table really pop and i'm, I'm sort of going oh wow i feel like i've got proper color vision back now so that's all good and fine from a technical point of view but in terms of like what you're actually watching obviously it's now internet enabled it's got all the apps built into it so now you know what used to be my usual satellite box you'd normally watch it's now having to compete because as well as that thing, the icons next to it are YouTube, which has got you know, a billion things to watch on that. Then it's oh. got Netflix. Then it's got Twitch, Amazon Prime. Sure. So there's all those kinds of things. But then on top of all of that, there's now extra channels that the TV itself is providing, presumably from internet feeds. Mm. And, okay, they're not the, the most fantastic thing in the world, but, like, if I wanted to watch MasterChef Australia for 24 hours, <laughs> or poker, or all manner of other things, then there's, like, now two or three hundred other streams of stuff for it to compete with. So I'm just sort of thinking, well, this this is, like, revolutionary. Now, that like what used to be... Like when I first had a television, it was literally four buttons on top of the... On top of the TV, you had buttons. My word, you're you're so young, David. You know, we had a dial. We had a small. We had a small urchin that had to stand next to the television and turn turn buttons for us. To be fair, the fourth button was labelled ITV two because they knew that there was going to be a new ITV channel talking about channel four earlier but they didn't know what it was going to be called yet so they labeled it itv2 but ironically <laughs> there is now an itv2 it would be really funny to get that tv back and now tune it to uh, love island <laughs> well i love the, i love your description of uh, you know discovering the lost world of <laughs> you know, crawling out of the cave to discover what televisions are like now having said that i mean i have a smart tv and some of these channels fireplace tv for example where i can just turn my television into a fireplace and it does 
also beg the question of we don't have any more viewers than we used to have and there's a lot of other things for people to do in the world so who the hell is actually watching all of these channels mm. I looked in some of the stats about that so mm. we were watching in the uk four hours of television a day at the peak of 2011 and then that's slowly been eroding so it's down to sort of three hours of linear tv into 2019 now Things like lockdown helped reverse some of that trend. But the big winners during lockdown were the streamers because yeah. people binged watch loads of stuff. That their, their viewing time doubled during lockdown. So they've been big winners of that. But of course, now the streamers are beginning to suffer because mm. people are beginning to uh, not work from home to go back to work. The kids are back in school. And also the cost of living, certainly in the UK, is under huge, huge strain. And what we're finding is that people are unsubscribing or certainly have reached peak subscription. Um, but people in America are unsubscribing from at least one service every six months or something like that. So mm. there's a there's a definitely a, a decline. And of course, those big streamers are already committed to massive spends in the next three or four quarters, which isn't going to be reflected by new subscription. And it's the new subscription that's funding all of this it's not the existing subscribers it's the new subscribers so if subscription starts to fall then there's a massive gap between the, the committed spend and the revenue so with all of these choices the, the eyeballs are getting ever thinly more stretched mm. and you linked to an article about this thing called zero rated tv tell us about that yes this was an article in the guardian that was prompted by a piers morgan's new show I won't go into that particularly, but it brings up this question of zero rating. So zero rating is basically when the numbers of people watching a show falls below a certain threshold. I know in days gone by that was 100,000. So with the standard British barber ratings, if a show failed to get more than 100,000 viewers, it was regarded as being zero rated. Nowadays, that would be a reasonable outcome for quite a few channels, actually, who would be quite pleased to get 100,000 viewers. But what the article really points to is this proliferation of channels around the world which are being put out where, frankly, almost nobody is watching. And in days gone by, again, these channels have been protected by uh, by being bundled up so that when you buy a particular bouquet or bundle on your Sky service or, or whatever service that you use, bundled into that are minority channels. So whether you like it or not, you've got Dressage TV, Antiques TV or Acorn TV, um, whatever it might be, bundled up. But now what's happening is that people are beginning to unbundle. This has been going on for a couple of years now, where people don't want to bundle anymore. They, they're much more able to just choose the channels they want, and they don't want to pay for channels they don't want. So these channels are finding that without the protection of a bundle, no one is watching them. So they are zero rated. I'd love to meet somebody who actually watches Bloomberg TV. <laughs> it's like... I just never meet anybody who does. I think there, there is a guy, but I think he's called Bloomberg. <laughs> he's a very rich man. And he's a very rich man. So <laughs> I think he I think he can sit there and enjoy his own channel. But <laughs> that's a very good point. I like that. And then there's, there's a whole mess of like, well, do all the linear people actually want to be digital uh, to, to try and compete? So uh, talking again about Channel 4, 
they've just announced a deal to put a thousand hours of their content on YouTube for free. It's a funny thing this in the Scandinavian countries, you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, they've been promoting digital first for for much longer than we have. Um, and now when they're commissioning stuff, they're very much telling producers that the programming must be digital first. In other words, it it lands on their digital, their own streamer before it goes linear. I was in Denmark last week with one of the broadcasters who was telling me that interestingly having reached a kind of 50 50 point of viewers watching content linear and digital that it's pretty much staying there so there's still a dedicated 50 percent of the audience who want to watch stuff in a in a linear way and whether that trend will continue whether it'll stay there obviously we don't know but i think it's quite an interesting insight into just whether this is an inexorable slide from linear to digital um, or whether it's not the done deal that everyone thinks i think ultimately certainly as far as commercial channels go in the uk say if you're launching a big new popular family product pretty much itv still is the thing you want your advert to be on it still has got value of being the way of getting your message out to the biggest possible range of people and any other way of, of getting it out to people whether it's on the side of a bus or in a magazine or a, a pop-up on a on a youtube advert it's still a very much a fragmented way of doing it um, i think i think you're right you have all the benefits of a linear linear channel i think it's very difficult for producers who are being required to create linear content that's streamable because essentially they are two different animals and they have a different audience and they have a different shape. Streamers tend to be front-loaded. They tend to fewer hosts. They don't usually carry advertising and therefore the, the, the rhythm of the show is not built around building up to a peak just before a commercial break. Linear series tend to have longer series arcs, whereas streamers tend to be shorter. So there's a there's a lot of difference between the two. And right at the moment, it's very hard for a producer to ride both horses. So there you are. I don't know what the conclusion to all that is. Other than that, the whole thing's a mess. And uh, <laughs> it's cheaper, easier and more findable to stick with audio podcasts. So you're doing the right thing by listening to TV show and tell. Now, the original series producer of The Chase, Sue Allison, returns to show and tell us a historic piece of art. And Sue Allison is back with us again. Uh, so, Sue, what have you brought to show and tell us? Well, I've brought something from The Chase. In another life, if I could draw and if I was in any way artistic, I would have loved to be a set designer. I always really enjoy trying to figure out the challenges of a show. How do you make this format come alive with how it looks on screen and what the sort of physicality of the set is? But I literally can't draw. And so whenever I've worked with set designers, they have to try and interpret my squiggles and appalling stick drawings to <laughs> work out this idea that I've got in my head that I just can't put down um, on paper. So what I've brought as my show and tell, I'm going to show it to you now. So, um, which obviously no one can see, but you can you can assess um, the quality. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why Justin and David are laughing because there's some very top quality artistic skill being shown. And it is. I mean, it... go on, David. 
But it, it's a beautiful right angle triangle. Yes, and it is a very clear and accurate description of the set for the chase. It's I'm showing that so the right angle is the table, and at the bottom of the right of the of the pointy bit of the uh, triangle is Brad Stickman number one and contestant Stickman number two, and at the top. Um, of the triangle is uh, another stick person who is the chaser and there's probably about 10 lines on the drawing altogether and that is what I showed the designer and said right can you make that into a set me brilliant <laughs> but there the chaser is, is standing up well probably only because I can't draw someone sitting down <laughs> but hey, you know, in some ways, in some ways, the simplicity of it is it's genius because if, if you can explain it, yeah, if you can explain it that simply, if that is the mechanic of the show, which it is, which you can do in ten lines and uh, not very straight ones, let's be honest, um, then um, then I think that's that's really the essence of a of a of a, sim- a cleverly simple format. But you do see why I'm not a set designer now. Yes, I do see that. But that that triangle has now been replicated in nearly 20 countries, so... (laughs) With slightly uh, straighter lines, luckily. Yeah, it's a very important triangle, and one that should obviously be in Bob Bowden's Museum of Game Show History, I would say. Should should I send it to him? It should. Yeah. You should send it to Bob, absolutely. He loves that kind of thing. I think, I hope hope it's in the format Bible as well. (laughs) So do I. That's excellent. Maybe what you should do in the Bible is just send them that. The first time they ask for set <laughs> designs, just send them that's that. That's what our designers had to work with. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's, that's marvellous, Sue. Well, thank you very much indeed for bringing your lovely triangle to share and tell us. <laughs> You're welcome. And finally, once again, it's time for our little parlour game at the end of the show, Fake or Format. And this episode, it is Justin's turn to try and pull the wool over my eyes. He's going to say two TV show ideas. One of them is a genuine one, and one of them he's made up himself. So off you go, Justin. Okay, so the first one is called Cosmic Love. And it basically, it's a dating show about astrology. So you've got four singletons and they're each matched with somebody based on their zodiac signs. Mm. And each of them represents one of the four astrological elements. So fire, earth, air and water. And essentially they're eliminated one at a time until there's a final couple who must decide whether to marry or avoid. Okay. So that's cosmic love. Mm -hmm. The next one is called forensic love, or in some countries it's known as love under the microscope. And this is basically true crime meets dating. So singletons, again, this time they subject their bodies entirely to forensic scientists who uncover revealing truths about them. Not all bacteria is healthy. And during their dates, the host reveals these truths about each singleton one at a time, which are often things they don't even know about themselves and the question is will this turn them on or turn them off so cosmic love or forensic love Mm. your choice cosmic love smells a little bit like it might be an asian show because i know that for example in japan people do use stuff like that and also believe not blood types as well they use their blood types to see if, if you're compatible with each other um, as far as forensic love, I think um, mm-hmm. I think that that one could potentially work because isn't there something about your pheromones? If they smell 
like good or bad your potential match, then it means that you've, your genes are compatible with them or not. So that kind of has the ring of logic, certainly, to it. Definitely think forensic love could work. So I'm going to go for that one. Well, I'm afraid you're wrong this time. Oh, right. Yes, Cosmic Love has been commissioned by Amazon Prime. It's a French original show, and it'll be coming to your streamer pretty soon. Forensic Love, I'm afraid I made up completely. Oh, um, okay. But I have to say, having made it up, I think it's rather good. Um, <laughs> I have sort of visions of people combing for pubic lice and things like that. But uh, yeah, so there we go. Cosmic Love is, a, is, is real, and I'm afraid Forensic Love or Love Under the Microscope is entirely made up. Well done. But there is a useful thing that a, an astrology quiz show of the past has done for quizzing which yeah. is that there was a, a show that Tom O'Connor used to present called the Zodiac Game. Oh, yeah. God, yes. And the theme tune for that goes something like Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, Aries, Taurus. And the thing is, the star signs are listed in the correct order. <laughs> so to this very day, quiz people still mentally sing that song to them <laughs> in their heads because it helps them remember the right order of the star signs. Brilliant. Okay, and that is it for this time. We're always delighted to hear from you, and even more so if it's relevant to the podcast. Our email address is contact at tvshowandtell.com, or you can speak your brains on our Twitter handle of at tvshowpodcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>